Hello, shiver seekers. Are you ready to follow us into the unknown? I'm Cynthia. And I'm Stephanie. And you have found the dark oak. On today's episode, we are going to go through a timeline of the disappearance and murder of Lacey and Connor Peterson. Is Scott really guilty? Listen to the evidence and you decide. Ooh. Welcome to The Dark Oak, the mystery podcast with purpose. Each month through the Branch of Hope Fund, we give a portion of earnings from our Patreon and sponsors to a nonprofit organization of your choosing. To find out how you can be part of the movement, head over to thedarkoak.com or stay with us until the end of the episode and we will give you all the details. Okay, Stephanie. There are certain true crime cases that as soon as I think about them or hear that something new has developed, it takes me right back to where I was when the story originally unfolded. For whatever reason, something about the victim or the crime struck a chord with me and stuck with me. Well, today's episode covers one of those cases because 21 years ago, the story of a beautiful, charismatic, seven and a half month pregnant woman inundated news and media outlets when she went missing on Christmas Eve. Tragic. It's awful. Lacey Peterson appeared to have it all. She was beautiful, likable, had a handsome husband, a house in California, and she was expecting her first child, a beautiful baby boy named Connor. It seemed the entire world fell in love with the missing Lacey Peterson. Now, in the last 21 years, her abduction and murder has never strayed far from the public eye. I would be hard-pressed to find a peer who didn't know the basics of Lacey Peterson's case. Absolutely. So for that reason, I'm not going to focus on all of the details you've probably heard before. There are several podcasts and documentaries, books where you can hear, like, her basic story. But what I want to focus on is what you may not have heard. For anyone who may not know much about this case... A quick overview is that Lacey Peterson was a 27-year-old part-time substitute teacher living in Modesto, California, with her 30-year-old husband, Scott Peterson, who worked as a sales manager of a fertilizer company. On Christmas Eve 2002, when Lacey was seven and a half months pregnant, she disappeared from her home. Her body and the body of her son were found in the San Francisco Bay approximately four months later. During that time that she was missing, authorities and the public learned that Scott had been having an affair with a woman named Amber Fry, who was unaware that Scott was married, let alone married to a missing woman. When Amber learned that Scott's wife was the missing Lacey Peterson, Amber began working with the police and recording all of her telephone conversations with Scott. And given the fact that his wife and unborn son were missing, these flirty conversations were pretty upsetting. Do you remember hearing them? I do. It's so funny. I mean, recent events have really thrust this case back in the limelight. And some of the details are vague, but I remember at least in the media at the time of the investigation and the trial was that, I mean, Scott was just a major like sleazeball. And he remains a major sleazeball. I can okay. tell you that. He, whether you think he's guilty or innocent, he's a sleazeball. Okay. So my memory is correct in that, though. Correct. <laughs> okay. Yeah, but there's so much now I'm reading that, you know, maybe not all the details came out originally. So I'm excited to hear 
what you found? Yeah, I'm going to be focusing on like what the state says versus what the defense says and then what the evidence says. And then you can take that and kind of figure out what you think. Okay. So, I mean, just because you're a sleazeball doesn't mean you're a murderer. That is true. That's the idea, right? That is absolutely true. Okay. So about four months after Lacey disappeared, her body was found in the San Francisco Bay where Scott had been fishing the day she disappeared. Scott was arrested for her murder, as well as the murder of their unborn son, Connor, and sentenced to death in 2004. His death penalty was overturned in 2020 and changed into a life sentence, and he has since filed an appeal claiming new evidence proving his innocence. Now, let's go through the timeline. Married Scott Peterson met Amber Fry on November 20th, 2002, when they were set up on a blind date by a mutual friend. And this mutual friend did not know that Scott was married at the time. On their first date, Scott and Amber had dinner and then spent the night together at a Fresno hotel. Now, during this first meeting, Scott told Amber the following lies. He said he would be fishing in Alaska over Thanksgiving. He would be in Maine for Christmas and he would be in Paris for New Year's and in Europe on business for parts of January. And all of this was a lie. Okay, so all the times he's planning on basically spending with his actual family, he's making convenient excuses for reasons he will not be available. Exactly. And and he's already pre-planning his lies. Yes, for sure. Okay. But the defense actually uses this as proof that, you know, Scott wasn't necessarily planning on killing his wife because he was making excuses as to why he wouldn't be around because he was going to be with his wife. I don't know. It's a slippery (laughs) slope there. I don't know that I would use that solely. Let's see what else they came up with. All right. Well, on December 2nd, while they were decorating the Christmas tree, Amber asked Scott if he had ever been married or been close to being married. And Scott said no. On December 6th, just a couple of weeks after after introducing the couple, Amber's friend Sean Sibley heard that Scott was married and Sean confronted Scott and asked if he was married. And at first, Scott said, no, he was not married. But now about an hour after this initial conversation, Scott called Sean and said that he had been married, but that he had lost his wife. And Sean told Scott that he had until the following Monday to tell Amber the truth. During this phone call, Scott was crying and inconsolable. Oh, boy. Okay. The next day, December 7th, Scott began searching for a boat for purchase. Okay. On December 8th, there were several searches on the home laptop for boat plus ramp plus Pacific plus San Francisco Bay. There were also searches for Berkeley Marina, nautical charts, water currents, and navigational charts for that area. The next day, December 9th, Scott told Amber that he had been married previously and that he had lied about it because it was too hard to talk about because he had, quote, lost his wife. Yeah, what what was everyone supposed to infer from lost? Like she had died? That, or she ran away? Well, Amber understood it that the wife had died. Okay. Okay. That's kind of how he put it. He had lost And the mutual his friend wife. thought that as well? This friend yes. that introduced them? Okay. Now, Scott is saying, you know, there are more ways to interpret it, interpret, and excuse me, Scott says there are more ways to interpret having lost someone than either through death or, you know, something of that nature. So he's saying, oh, you know, emotionally, like those are the kind of things that he's implying But Amber and Sean took it as if the wife had passed. Scott also told 
Amber that the upcoming holidays would be his first holidays without his wife after having lost her. And Amber asked if he was ready for a new relationship. And he said, yes. (laughs) He's like, heck yes. Yes, please. (laughs) On this same day, Scott paid $1,400 cash for a small fishing boat. On December 20th, Scott purchased a temporary fishing license, and this license was good for two days, two days only, and the dates he got the license for were December 23rd and December 24th. That's important. Remember that. Okay, noted. Scott says that on the evening of December 23rd, 2002, he and Lacey went to Salon Salon where Lacey's sister Amy worked. Scott said that Amy gave him a haircut, and then Amy showed Lacey how to flip her hair with a straightener. Amy said that Scott invited her over for pizza that night, but she declined because she already had other plans. Now, Amy said during this visit, Scott mentioned that he had planned to go golfing in the morning, which was Christmas Eve, and he offered to pick up a gift basket that they'd ordered for their father at a store called Vela Farms, since he would be golfing close to the store. This gift basket was already paid for. All he had to do was pick it up, but he was going to be nearby the next day. Okay. Amy said that Lacey had been wearing tan pants and a black blouse with small flowers. And she would know. You know, we've talked a lot about how eyewitness testimony is not always as accurate as we like to think that it is. But if you're sitting in a hairstylist chair for quite a bit of time, they have a good amount of time to look at your outfit. Right. And it's her pregnant sister, so she's probably telling her, oh, you look so cute. And Exactly. Yeah. Right. I want to briefly skip ahead to February 18th, because in an effort to find Lacey, a search was performed of Scott and Lacey's house, and a shirt and a pair of pants were found. And it is commonly reported that Amy was able to identify these clothes found in the search as the clothes that Lacey had been wearing this night at the salon. And Scott's defense team believes that this is really important because during the prosecution's closing arguments, it was alleged that the clothing clothing found on Lacey's body when her body was recovered may have been the same same clothes that she was wearing at the salon. Huh. Inferring that she may have been killed that evening after they left the salon. Got it. However, despite rumors that Amy confirmed this outfit was in fact the outfit she'd been wearing. Despite several attempts by the defense team, Amy would not testify to this during the trial. Oh, so they just straight like made that up? The vibe I'm getting is that maybe initially she said, yeah, that could be the clothes. But then when actually on trial asked to testify, she couldn't say for certain these are definitely the clothes. Oh, okay. Back to December 23rd. Scott said that when they left the salon, they picked up dinner of pizza on the way home where they watched Monday night football. At 8.30 that evening, Lacey spoke to her mother, Sharon, on the phone to confirm Christmas Eve dinner plans at Sharon's house the next evening. Scott said after the phone call with Sharon, they watched more football, then watched the movie The Rookie, and then he guessed that they went to bed somewhere around 10.30 p.m., and he said that Lacey wore his blue pajama bottoms to bed. The next morning, Christmas Eve, Scott said that Lacey woke up around 7 He said she got dressed and put the blue pajama pants in the hamper, and these pajama pants were found in the hamper during a December 26th search of the house. Okay. At 8.40 a.m., someone logged onto the family computer, and Scott said that this was Lacey. He says that he was in the shower at this time. Now, various home pages and Yahoo pages were accessed, and a weather search for the San Francisco Bay Area was looked at. Scott's defense team alleges that someone searched for a red 
gap scarf and a sunflower umbrella stand. Now, why would someone want weather reports for the San Francisco Bay Area? That's a good question. I mean, considering, so we already know they had plans, you know, Christmas dinner plans at her mother's. Her mother does not live in the San Francisco Bay. Correct. Okay. All right. Interesting. Well, in regards to this search for this gap scarf and this sunflower umbrella stand. Yeah. Lacey had an affinity for dragonflies, ladybugs, and sunflowers. Okay. So Scott Peterson and everyone in the Scott Peterson is Innocent camp says that these searches were obviously performed by Lacey, proving she was alive at 8.45 a.m. However, a forensic computer expert testified testified that the two-minute shopping spree may not have been a search at all, but instead could have been advertisement links on the computer page. And to further this theory, the computer history shows that the Gap website was never accessed, even though this alleged Gap scarf search was seen in the history. The Gap does not sell their items on Yahoo, but they do advertise there. Yeah, I mean, you know, I feel like it's always, uh, I have mixed thoughts on when criminals, again, we're going on this, he may be innocent, but I mean, he wasn't even smart enough to create a history (laughs) if indeed he did do it. I mean, he could have at least acted more like, you know, he was her. Well, this search was like... This search is a big thing the defense hangs their hat on because Scott would never look for a red scarf and sunflower umbrella stand. I mean, that's got to be lazy. So, I mean, the defense thinks this is a big deal. Yeah, but again, there's no way to, like I said, prove it wasn't an advertisement. That's true. But according to the defense team, this was And even if you're looking for weather reports, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what the internet was like in 2004, but... I this know was now. 2002. Oh, 2002. But I know if I go on, you know, the Weather Channel, there's a million ads on exactly. the Weather Channel. Exactly. Um, now, again, I don't remember what it was like 20 years ago, uh, but I imagine there were ads there, too. Sure. Sure. Well, if you already think this is Scott on the computer, get this. After the alleged searches, Scott's email was checked. Okay. So... Who does that sound like to you? Oh, you mean like checked by someone on the computer? Yes. Oh. Yeah, part of this whole computer activity, it was the home pages, the weather search, so, the the sunflower umbrella stand search, maybe, if it wasn't an ad, and then his email. So he said Lacey was on there checking his email. Okay. Clearly, she's the one who did that search for the umbrella stand. Who else would have done that? Yeah, absolutely. Now, Scott's family stated that an analysis of Lacey's computer, typical computer use, should have been done. And then they could have taken that information and compared it to what we're seeing here. Because maybe it wasn't unusual for Lacey to check Scott's email. I don't know. However, no analysis was ever completed. Bummer. Now, Scott says that while he got dressed that morning, Lacey told him that her plans for the day included walking their golden retriever, McKenzie. She said she was going to go to the store to purchase bread to make French toast to be served at their Christmas brunch and then make gingerbread. Now, a recipe for creme brulee French toast was on the counter. It did call for bread and it needed to be marinated for 8 to 24 hours. So that does line up with Scott's account. Uh-huh. The shoes Lacey would have normally worn to go for a walk were found in the house. And Lacey was having a difficult pregnancy 
And her mother, Sharon, had said that she was not able to go on long walks at this point in her pregnancy. In fact, after one of her prenatal yoga sessions, her yoga instructor had to help her out to her car because she was in so much pain. And during a previous walk around the park, Lacey got sick and almost passed out, ended up vomiting in front of some maintenance workers. And then she was so embarrassed because they had to clean up her vomit for her. I know. I know. It's awful. So after that, her doctor told her she could no longer take these walks. Or if she did, she needed to do it much later in the day after she was thoroughly hydrated. So the fact that Lacey's apparently telling Scott that she's going to take the dog for a walk is suspect, according to Sharon and her doctor and her friends. Yeah. And also, again, I mean, I'm probably too far reaching here, but... If he was to hear his pregnant wife say that, even after he knows she's been giving these warnings, why was he just like, yeah, no big deal. That sounds fine. Good (laughs) question. You know, I mean, he's like, maybe I should go with you. Maybe you shouldn't go. I don't know. That seems strange to me. Right. The fact that he allowed her, you know what I mean? Yeah. The fact that he confirmed that was a great idea. Yeah. She should go do that. And this walk we'll see is like a big, a big. Yeah. Sure. Question here. Did she go on this walk? So, so. Scott said that at one point that morning, he saw Lacey sitting on a bench in her bathroom, curling her hair the way that Amy had shown her the night before. And when the house was searched, Lacey's curling iron was plugged in and a small bench was in the bathroom. And those are two items that the housekeeper said were not there the day before. However, there are police photographs showing both of those things pulled out. Okay. So if Lacey did not sit there that morning and curl her hair, then Scott had the wherewithal to... Plug the curling. Right. Yeah. Scott said that he loaded three patio umbrellas from the backyard into the bed of his truck so that he could take them to his warehouse for storage. However, these umbrellas were never dropped off at the warehouse. They remained in Scott's truck. And Scott would say that he forgot to leave them there. But in order for him to have attached his boat to his truck, which we know he did, he would have had to have seen the umbrellas in his truck bed. So how he still forgot to unload them at the warehouse, I don't know. Yeah, that, <laughs> I don't know. I There are several men in my life that I love very, very much, and I can see them forgetting the umbrellas. <laughs> well, and to be honest, when I read this, I could see myself. You know, doing I just... It. I. I don't know. I wouldn't hang my hat on that in either direction, I don't think. But if you're going to go to the trouble of loading up three umbrellas, ideally you're going to drop them off. But of course, the prosecution is implying that these umbrellas were in the bed of the truck to obscure Lacey's body. And that would be the purpose of them having been loaded in the truck. Okay. Okay. All right. And then the fact that they were not dropped off at the truck, which is his reason for having them in the or the fact that they were not dropped off oh, at the okay. warehouse, okay. which was his reason yeah. for having them in the truck, is suspect. Suspect. Okay. All right. Well, clearly, I do not have the mind of a killer, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> so Scott said after loading the umbrellas, he went back inside the house where he filled the mop bucket for Lacey so that she could mop the floor. Now, the housekeeper had just been to the house the day before, and while she was there, she cleaned and mopped the entire house. Her testimony was that she had a set schedule to come to the Peterson home every 15 days, and it did not appear that anyone cleaned between visits. So if the house was just mopped the day before, why was Lacey doing it again less than 24 hours later? 
And also, in not a very physically capable state. I mean, she can't go for a walk. How is she just mopping the house? Which, especially when it doesn't need to be done. Right. And and I thought that same thing because I was like, gosh, I'm not even pregnant and my house is all hard floors and to mop is like the worst. It's physically demanding. It's physically demanding. And again, I can see it if, you know, she had just had a party or somebody had spilled something or there was some reason for it. But just to, I just feel like mopping the floor. I don't know. Right. Now there is this whole she's pregnant, so maybe she's nesting. But again, you're going to mop the entire house when it was just mopped the day before. I, I don't know. And I have questions. And it's on Christmas. Christmas Eve. Yes. Yeah, Christmas Eve. When she you know has a bunch of other things to do. Yeah, exactly. Well, those who believe that Scott is guilty say that he was either lying about the mopping altogether, that Lacey was never mopping, or if mopping was done at all, it would have been done by Scott because there was something that needed to be cleaned up. The mop and mop bucket were pulled out as if they had been used. Okay, but there was nothing in the mop bucket. Well, no, there was not. And later, Scott would tell us that he emptied it. So later in this time, when he gets home after after what he does this day, and I'll, I'll get into it, he comes home and he empties the mop bucket. And the mop bucket were found where he says he left it emptied. But why was it filled hmm. in the first place? Scott told detectives that he and Lacey watched the Today Show and then the Martha Stewart Show and that Martha Stewart was talking about meringue. Now, the subject of meringue caused quite a stir at trial. Some have even referred to it as meringue <laughs> Because during the opening statements, the prosecution alleged that Scott was lying about watching Martha Stewart that morning because it was actually the December 23rd show that had an entire segment on making meringue. And that was true. On the December 23rd episode, meringue was mentioned eight times. Turns out, meringue was also mentioned on the Martha Stewart show on December 24th. And the defense team had a heyday with the prosecution's mistake, even bringing in a clip of the December 24th Martha Stewart show which they played twice, showing that Martha did, in fact, mention meringue one time at 9.48 a.m. And here's what's interesting about that. Lacey's mother, Sharon, stated in her book that this attempt to make the prosecution look foolish by bringing up their error ended up hurting the defense in the long run because Scott had repeatedly told everyone he left the house at 9.30 a.m. But the one time the meringue was mentioned on December 24th was at 9.48, proving Scott did not leave when he said he did and making the window for Lacey's alleged abduction even smaller. Oh, shoot. Meringue. Oh, Do you like meringue? I don't think I dislike meringue. I don't dream of meringue. <laughs> but if you gave me some, I'd eat it. On a pie, I guess. A, a, like on a lemon. Li like, aren't they on like key lime pies and stuff? Yeah. They're like the little like pillowy sure, looking. Yeah. yeah. I like a good meringue. It has a good, a little bit of a bite, but a little bit of a chew. Yeah. 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 All right. I think I like meringue. I don't know that I can make a meringue, but I would eat a meringue. Well, Martha Stewart, December 23rd, 2002. <laughs> Go for She's it. She's got the deep. <laughs> now, forensic teams were able to triangulate that Scott more accurately left the house around 10.08 a.m. because he made a call from his cell phone that pinged at the cell tower nearest his house, but by the end of that call, it had switched to the tower nearest his warehouse. So he's clearly traveling. Traveling. 
At 10.18, 10 minutes after Scott left his home, Scott and Lacey's neighbor found Mackenzie, their dog, running around alone outside with his leash still attached to his collar. She said that she caught Mackenzie and put him in the Peterson's fenced backyard. That is a 10-minute window for Scott to leave the house, for Lacey to mop the entire house, leave the house to walk the dog, get abducted, and the dog be found running around alone. Mm. 10 minutes. So this 10-08 timeline is really problematic for the defense because Scott originally said that when he left the house, Lacey was mopping. That was his original story. I left the house. She was mopping. This reminds me of our Athalia Ponza Lindsley case we just covered about the the Allen timeline. I know. When you were going through the timeline, I was like, oh, that reminds me of the Lacey Peterson case. Yeah, you got to get your timeline the straight, guys. timelines. They'll get you every time. Yeah. So Scott had told investigators that Lacey had so many rooms to mop that he left the filled mop bucket by the front door because it was the most central place to leave the bucket for where she had to go in the house mopping. There was no way for her to mop the majority of, if not all of the house, take the dog for a walk and get abducted in a window of 10 minutes. No. I mean, and she's seven and a half months in a difficult pregnancy. Correct. So everything takes way longer than you think it will. Everything. Now, Scott's appellate attorney seemed to understand that this timeline was a problem for Scott because according to scottpetersonappeal.org, Scott actually just misspoke about the mopping. And in actuality, he said Lacey was mopping when he woke up. But wait a minute. I thought he filled the mop bucket for her. Yeah, so, that's, yeah that, that doesn't make sense. It is approximately a nine-minute drive from the Peterson home to Scott's warehouse. And this warehouse acts as Scott's garage area, and he also has a little office set up inside that he works out of. So if it's a nine-minute drive to the warehouse from his home, that puts him there around 1017. And at 1030, he logs onto his computer in the warehouse. After that, there's about 20 minutes from when Scott logged off the computer to when he left the warehouse. And he says during this time, he cleaned the office and began assembling a mortiser, which is a type of woodworking tool. Okay. He'd received this mortiser on December 20th, and it was found completely assembled in his warehouse. And again, all of this is kind of just, if he wasn't doing the things he said he was doing, what was he doing? Was he rearranging a body? Was he... Okay. There's all kinds of things he could have been doing that were nefarious if he wasn't doing what he actually said he was doing. So that's the importance of all this. While there that morning at the warehouse, he said he opened the roll-up door and unloaded some tools from the toolbox that was in his truck bed. And while he was doing that, he cut his knuckle on his toolbox. So he said that if any blood was found in or on his truck, that would be the reason why. Blood residue was found on the driver's side door. Okay. Now, interestingly, Scott did not tell this story to authorities that he'd cut his hand on the toolbox until three weeks after Lacey went missing. Because for the first three weeks after her disappearance, he told authorities that he had cut his hand on the pocket of his car door. Okay. Did he have a cut on his hand? He had a cut on his hand. Okay, so he definitely had a cut on his hand. The right. question is, how did he get it? When did he get it? Right. Okay. And he himself had two different stories as to how he got it. 
Right. It appears Scott was very concerned about the police finding blood because he told law enforcement and the media that he cut himself a lot. So it would not be unusual for them to find blood. (laughs) Okay. All right. According to Scott, at some point while he was at his warehouse, he decided it was too cold to golf. So he decided to go fishing instead. So this fishing trip was allegedly a last minute change change in plans. But let me go back and remind you that on December 20th, Scott purchased a two day fishing license for the dates of December 23rd and December 24th. Right. So why would he have picked those dates if he had planned to go play golf? I mean, maybe he, devil's advocate, maybe he knew it might be cold and just wanted to have a backup? Possibly. Sure. Okay. Maybe. Maybe. Speaking of the cold, a lot of people, including myself, have said that, well, if it was too cold to go golfing, (laughs) wouldn't it have been too cold to go fishing? I thought that too. But then I'm like, well, people go ice fishing. That's true. I don't know. Well, and I'm not a golfer or a, a fisherman, so how would I know? I will tell you this. Lacey's stepfather, Ron, also went fishing on this cold Christmas Eve. However, Ron was a very avid fisherman. It was like his favorite pastime. And his fishing trip on this same date consisted of him literally just like pulling over at one of his favorite roadside fishing spots that he passed on his way home from work. So it was just a very easy in and out kind of fishing trip. That's the whole argument. And I do feel like it's it's different. I mean, the clothes that you're going to wear, like you don't have to move the same to fish as you do to golf. Correct. Correct. You know, and so you can wear big, lofty, you know, like heavy clothes to fish. Correct. You can't really wear those if you're going to do a golf swing. Well, and here's what I take from this. Here's the important thing that I take from this. So when Ron went fishing, he literally pulled over on a place he was already passing. Scott did not. This took a lot of planning. Scott said it took him an hour and a half to get to the Berkeley Marina from his warehouse. That's where he went fishing. By himself. On Christmas Christmas Eve. Eve. Okay. So which seems more plausible? You're going to pull over beside your favorite little roadside fishing spot on your way home as you're driving past it, or you're going to drive an hour and a half each way to go fishing. Do you sure. see? What- yeah, yeah, of course. Of course. So Scott bought his boat launch ticket at 12.54 p.m. and told police that he was fishing for about an hour and a half. He said that while he was on the water, he motored north for about two miles. He said he saw an island with trash, a no landing sign, and a broken piers. He's describing Brooks Island. And this is where he said he turned around to head back to the marina. Now, during the trial, the prosecution brought an expert in water currents and to testify that if bodies had been dumped pretty much anywhere else in the bay, they would have been washed out to sea. But if they'd been dumped exactly where Scott says that he was on that day, they would end up washing to shore exactly where they were found four months later. Whoa. I don't know if that's just karma or bad luck or Man, those are big questions because people say there there are two different theories about how that happened. Yeah. One, either the bodies were there because that's where Scott put them or two, the bodies were there because people knew that's where the authorities thought Scott put them. So that's where they put them. 
to frame Scott. Okay. So though Scott told the police he was on the water for about an hour and a half, in actuality, it was 78 minutes from the purchase of the boat launch ticket to Scott Peterson calling Lacey on his way home. Scott alleges that he drove 180 miles, which took three hours round trip, to be on the water for less than an hour. Yeah. How many fish did he catch? Oh, zero. Yeah, that's strange. Zero. Well, he has reasons why he didn't catch any fish. I'd like to hear. Okay. Outside of if just he's a bad fisherman. <laughs> <laughs> well, that might be the answer. <laughs> Let me start off by telling you, there were more than a dozen places closer to Modesto where Scott could have fished. Of course, he could have gone with Ron. Exactly. And those places would have actually been much more appropriate for the type of fishing setup that he had because he was set up for freshwater fishing. However, the bay was the closest saltwater fishing spot, and Scott said that he preferred saltwater fishing to freshwater fishing, despite his gear being made for freshwater. So prosecutors pointed out at trial that one of Scott's two fishing poles had a broken crank, so you can't catch fish on that. The other had a freshwater lure on it. The lures that would have been appropriate for the location where he said he was fishing, that he'd purchased along with his temporary fishing license on the 20th, remained unopened on the front seat of his truck where he said he forgot them. Clever. Now, there was one witness, Yuri Faria, who said that he saw Scott during this alleged fishing trip and he was able to look into Scott's boat and did not see anything unusual. However, he was not called to testify at the trial. The defense told him to go ahead, go on his pre-planned trip instead. So there was No testimony at trial of anyone who said they were able to see into Scott's boat and confirm that Lacey was not there. This would have been a very helpful witness to have at trial. Did he know something else, maybe? No one knows. The defense didn't call him. I wonder if he knew something else. Weird. If... This man could legitimately say, I could see into his boat. There was no body. The smoking gun or lack of, you know what I'm saying? Like to prove he's innocent. If this was just a mistake made by the defense to not call this guy, eh, we don't need you. You're going to be out of town. Don't worry about it. Like that's a huge mistake. Yeah. Upon leaving the marina, Scott called both the house phone and Lacey's cell phone. And one of these calls was the Hey Beautiful call. You may have heard it. Like, he says, hey, beautiful, it's 2.15 p.m. I'm just leaving Berkeley, and I won't have time to swing by and get Papa's gift basket. Mm-hmm. Can you go get it for me? Okay. Now, Scott's sympathizers used this voicemail as proof that Scott, even though he'd originally told everyone he was planning to golf that day, was obviously not trying to hide the fact that he'd changed his mind and gone fishing instead because in the voicemail, he did say he was leaving Berkeley. People who think that Scott is guilty take this same exact fact and they say it's suspicious because he so casually mentions leaving Berkeley when his wife didn't know he was at the Berkeley Marina in the first place. I just thought that was so interesting how you can take the same exact fact and see two different things, what you want to see. What you want to see. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. Okay. Scott called Lacey's cell phone again at 3.52 p.m., but did not leave a message. He said after leaving the marina, he went back to his warehouse. He got gas on his way home, unhooked the boat, saw that a fax had come in at the warehouse, and then headed home. He says he arrived home between 4.30 and 4.45 p.m. 
He went in through their side gate and saw that their dog, Mackenzie, was in the backyard with his leash on. Scott says he took the leash off the dog, then went inside the house taking the dog and cat with him. That's when he emptied the mop bucket by pouring it outside by the front walkway and then left the bucket and left the bucket and mop right there where he dumped them. And that's where they were later found by police. Then he said he went to get the mail and he said that he saw that Lacey's car was in the driveway, but Lacey wasn't home. So he assumed that her mom, Sharon, had picked her up and that she was over there helping to prepare Christmas Eve dinner. Okay. Scott said that his clothes were wet from fishing, so he decided to go get undressed and wash his clothes immediately. He removed dirty cleaning cloths from the washer that the housekeeper had put in the day before and then did his own laundry. And he said this was not unusual for him to wash his clothes immediately upon returning home because he often worked with chemicals. And there was also no garage area to really store, like, the really dirty clothes that you you wouldn't want in your house. So he was in the habit of washing them immediately. Yeah. I I mean, again, I don't know that that sways me one way or another. That's possible. The question I had, and I don't know that it really matters, was if he was taking something out of the washer that the housekeeper had put in the day before, I would be curious to know, had they already been washed? Because, like... There have been times where I put thrown like dry things in the washer and not like ran it. And then somebody else wants to go do laundry. And in order to do laundry, they have to take all my dirty stuff out. Hmm. And so I just wondered, like, if you went to go do your laundry, but you saw that there was stuff in there that needed to be washed, would you take it out to put your stuff in? And then what are you doing with the dirty cloths? Or if they had been washed, had they been sitting there for 24 hours? Had they started to mildew? Would they have needed washed? Either that the part that he the point that he had to take something out of the washer just made me stop for a minute. I don't know that it means anything. It was just something I wondered in my mind. Like if that means anything. As someone who takes a solid week to actually complete one load of laundry because I have to keep repeatedly washing it because I forget it in the washer. I would assume they were dirty rags that were washed that were just hanging out in the washer, but that's just me. (laughs) And just he put them in the dryer and did his own laundry. Yeah. For someone who does a massive amount of laundry, I mean, I do with the animals that we rescue and my kids and the lifestyle we have, I do an immense amount of laundry. You would be shocked at how many times I forget to rotate the laundry, though. That makes me feel so much better because I feel like I forget a lot and I'm like, what is wrong with me? So it's helpful oh, to know I'm not constantly, alone. Constantly. Constantly. <laughs> I've started making it part of just like my bedtime routine. Like literally I'm brushing my teeth at, you know, right before bed. And I'm like, let me go check the laundry and find out if there's anything hanging out in the washer. Oh, that's <laughs> so really smart. I'm trying to get better at it. So when you said that, I'm like, yeah, somebody forgot the, the rags in the washer again. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Scott said that after he did his laundry, like after putting the clothes in the laundry, he then ate some leftover pizza and milk, and then went to take a shower while still eating the pizza. The pizza box was found on the counter that night. After a shower, Scott says he got dressed, went back into the kitchen, and listened to his phone messages. He heard the messages that he had left Lacey when he was leaving the marina, and there was also a message from Ron asking Lacey and Scott to bring whipped cream to dinner that night. So Scott called Ron and Sharon's home around 5.17 and asked if Lacey was there and was told that she was not. Sharon asked if the dog was home, and that's the first time Scott really thought about the fact that when he arrived home, Mackenzie the dog still had his leash on him. 
That's suspicious to me. No, that would be weird. That's weird, right? No, that's definitely weird. Not only do you come home and the dog has his leash on him in the backyard, but your wife's not home. Like. Oh, no, it's weird. Weird. Yeah. So immediately everyone starts looking for Lacey. At this point, now we're looking for Lacey. Scott says he knocked on some of his neighbor's doors. Sharon started calling hospitals. And at 547, Ron called the police and reported Lacey missing. During this call, Ron told police that Scott had come home from golfing that day and that his wife was not home. But later that evening, Ron asked Scott how golfing had been, and that's when he learned that Scott had decided to go fishing instead. So it was like a major last-minute decision, supposedly. Supposedly. And the reason why I bring that up is because there there is this rumor, and I don't know, it may be more valid. I didn't put it in here because I couldn't find, like, factual evidence of it. And I really wanted to bring, like, factual stuff. But there is a question as to whether or not Scott continued to tell people that he went golfing even though he went fishing. And some of the things that leads to that confusion is on this initial call to police, Ron is saying he was golfing today. But Ron could have been saying that based on old information. Correct. Yeah. But, you know, that little bit and it turns into because there are several people who will say that, no, Scott told me even after Lacey was missing, Scott told me he went golfing. He told me he was golfing all day. He told me. But I couldn't verify any of these things. So but that's why I bring it up. And that's why it's worth mentioning. Got it. The first officer arrived at the Peterson home around 6, 11 p.m. And Scott told him that he had been fishing in the Bay Area, and he gave the sergeant his his receipt from the Berkeley Marina parking lot. However, he was unable to provide a receipt for the gas he said he bought on his way home from Berkeley. News of the missing pregnant woman spread like wildfire, and almost immediately, people began reporting several alleged Lacey sightings. However, authorities ruled them out as they believe they all lacked credibility. I'm pretty sure I have seen just about everything there is to look at when it comes to this case. And I've seen some very compelling interviews on TV specials where some of these eyewitnesses are interviewed for the camera and mention that they believe they saw Lacey that morning, but that their tips to the police were never followed up on. And it's compelling when you see these people telling their stories saying, hey, the police never bothered to ask me about it. Sure. On February 28th, 2003, the Modesto Police Department put out a statement stating that at the time they'd received more than 8,000 tips. And many of these tips were legitimate, but some people were just calling to express their feelings and opinions. However, each tip was thoroughly investigated. They went on to say that the majority of the tips do not require callbacks. They said that a witness will receive a callback if the investigator feels that further information is needed. But if the caller is detailed and thorough, a callback is probably not necessary. Yeah, I can see that. If they just say, I see Lacey, uh, you know, I see someone that looks like Lacey at such and such gas station at such and such time. They don't necessarily need to talk to you about it because you already think you saw Lacey. They're going to go there to see if they can find her. Right. Yeah, I can see that. According to the Modesto Police Department, just because the witnesses did not hear back from the police does not mean that their accounts were ignored. Now, interestingly, several of these eyewitness tips that came in claimed to have seen Lacey out walking earlier that morning before Scott had even left the house and while Lacey was still at home, according to Scott's own account. Or up mopping. Correct. Okay. So like right off the bat, some of these, you know, you can't pick and choose. I I mean, I guess you can. You can 
investigate each tip and some might be more valid than others. But like the defense gets really upset that these sightings weren't believed to be the truth. However, some of the sightings directly go against what you're what right. Scott's saying. Exactly. So do you want them to believe Scott's word or just this eyewitness? Right. Right. Now, here are just a few of the tips that did come in that are kind of interesting and you'll probably you may have heard about. So a female hospital employee said that she saw two men yelling at a pregnant woman who was walking a dog. The hospital employee did receive a return phone call from the police. A retired reserve officer said that he saw a pregnant woman being shoved into the back of a van less than half a mile from the Peterson house. He said he contacted the police several times but never received a call back. A lieutenant who worked in a California prison called the Modesto police to report a phone conversation that one of their inmates had with his brother who lived in Modesto. And according to this witness, the brother told the inmate that Lacey had confronted some burglars who were robbing the house across the street from her. This conversation was recorded by the prison, but according to scottpetersonappeal.org, this tip was never followed up on and the tape has been lost. Now let's talk about this burglary for a few minutes. Yes, please. That's what I've been waiting for this whole time. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this burglary really seems to be the crux of the appeal. Yeah. The Medina family lived across the street from the Petersons. They'd been out of town for Christmas, and when they returned home, they discovered their house has been burgled. The men who robbed their house were captured and told police that they had broken into and robbed the house on December 26th at 4 a.m., two days after Lacey was missing. A reporter, Ted Rollins, said that he was camped out on the Peterson Street on the 26th, trying to get the scoop on this missing pregnant woman who had vanished. So Ted Rowland had said, has said in several places, but most notably on an A&E special on this case, that there was no way that this burglary occurred on December 26th because he would have witnessed it. So Scott supporters say that the burglary happened on the 24th and that Lacey probably saw something that she should not have seen. And given her nature, she confronted the burglars who then killed her because she was a witness. And this theory does line up with some of those alleged sightings about a pregnant woman being forced into a van or pushed around by a couple of men. However, the burglars passed polygraphs confirming confirming their account of the date, and the burglars were able to say that Ted Rowland was not in front of the Peterson house, but down the street, and that was later confirmed. Ooh, how did they know where he was? That's such they a weird saw detail. Him when they, they saw him when they burgled the house. Ooh. Oh, all right. So based on the investigation of the burglary, it has been officially decided that the burglary occurred on December 26, two days after Lacey went missing. Oh, snap. Mic drop. Mm. Now, just in case you are still one of the ones who falls into the camp where you think the burglary may have occurred on the day that Lacey disappeared, I just want you to know this little piece of information here. The Medinas did not leave their home until approximately 10.35 a.m. Mackenzie was found running around alone at 10.18. So I can only assume that by the time the Medinas left, Lacey was already missing. 
Oh, that's an interesting detail. Interesting that these people who bring up this whole burglary thing leave out. Like, because I will say out of everything I've known about this case, the one thing that made me give pause and think, is it possible that it was somebody else other than Scott was this burglary? Yeah, this is the reason you and I decided to cover this case. Right. We said, if there are so many people thinking he could be innocent, maybe there's some truth to this. Right. And I'd seen that A&E special where Ted Rowland is like, there's no way. And I'm telling you, it was so compelling because he's like, there was no way. There were news reporters camped up on this whole street. There's no way. And so then I'm like, well, maybe. Yeah. Maybe she saw something she didn't see. But then to learn that, mm, no, at four o'clock in the morning, there were not a bunch of news reporters lined up. One was there on the street, several houses down the street. And the burglars were able to say that he was several houses down the street. And even if they had burgled the house, it was after Lacey went missing. I mean, that for me also kills his theory. Ballsy burglars. I don't know, right? They're like, I'm going to burgle this house with like the media right on the street. I know, especially when a woman went missing two days prior on the street. Like, oh, you know what? Let's hit that house. I know. So do you feel like it's it's his testimony that he would have seen the burglars that has kept like has has given this movement momentum? I think that's a big part of it. And I I will say the eyewitness, the eyewitness sightings of Lacey, alleged sightings of Lacey, those were compelling to me as well. Because uh, one man said he saw a woman like squatting like she was urinating on the side of the road. And then two men kind of like roughing her up a little bit and shoving her into the van. I mean, hello, that's disturbing. Now, of course, I don't know why he didn't call the police when he saw this. He called the police after the fact when he learned that Lacey was missing. So... Yes, of course. You, I, I, I think it would be very close-minded as, of us to not take those things into consideration. But here's a little bit of interesting information about those sightings. Okay, tell me more. I have it a little later in the script, but I'll go ahead and tell it to you now. So when Scott reported Lacey missing, or actually Scott didn't report Lacey missing, when Scott, Ron did, but when Scott was talking to authorities, he told authorities that when he left that morning, Lacey was wearing a white shirt and black pants. And that is what was listed on her missing poster. Okay. Missing person poster. Sure. White shirt, black pants. Okay. And that is what the majority of the eyewitnesses saw. Okay. That makes sense. That's what they're looking right. for, right? That is not what she was wearing when her body was found. No. No. She was wearing clothing consistent with what she was wearing the night before at the salon. Now, I'm not saying that she was killed in the same clothes she wore at the salon. What I think gives me pause is the fact that, as we've discussed, eyewitness accounts are notoriously not credible. We think they are. It's not, it's not, you know, it's nothing. Well, it's not sinister. You're not nefarious. You're not intentionally trying to mislead people. Right. But we saw, we heard that she was wearing a white shirt, black pants. You know what? Wait a minute. I saw a woman walking a dog, white shirt, black pants, blah, blah, blah. She was not wearing the white shirt, black pants. So she was wearing something more like a black top and like tan pants. I don't know what shirt she was wearing, but she was definitely found in tan pants. Okay. 
not black pants like the eyewitnesses saw. So when you take all that into consideration and you find out more, it's a little harder for me to put weight into these eyewitnesses and the burglary theory. Wow. Now, you may have also heard that there were several pregnant women from the Modesto area who went missing or were murdered around the same time. Yeah. Inferring that perhaps Lacey was the victim of a baby ring. Yes. And the truth is there were a higher than average number of women missing or murdered, but not all of them were pregnant and several of them were found to have been killed by their partners. Here's the thing. Modesto, California had an extremely high crime rate. It was not a safe place. So the fact that there were missing, there was all kinds of violent crime in the area. Yeah. And I mean, and you're, a crime is more likely to be committed from a family member or someone you know, someone close to you. Right. So if you if you leave out some of the facts, oh, look at all these pregnant women who went missing or were murdered or, you know, that's leaving out facts when you discover that they were actually, you know, killed by their partner. Okay. Like, that's not a baby ring. That's domestic. You know, that's her yes. partner killing her. Yes. That's not the same thing, but they're lumped all Domestic homicide. Sure. Right. On December 27th, three days after Lacey vanished, a search warrant was executed and a boat cover was collected from the Peterson home as evidence. Now, this boat cover had been laying on the floor of the shed on top of some tools, but underneath a leaf blower. Authorities collected it because they suspected that it could have been used to cover Lacey's body in the boat. And in closing arguments, Rick Destasso says that the boat cover was put onto the boat to conceal Lacey during the drive to the Berkeley Marina. Detective Ray Coyle said that this boat cover had a strong odor of gasoline coming off of it and an obvious gasoline stain that was still wet. The smell was so strong that the cover had to be thrown over the fence to air out before it could be packaged and transported as evidence. Gasoline. Okay, interesting. Well, authorities found it really unusual that yeah. a brand new boat tarp had been in the back of Scott's trunk truck on December 24th. It was in the back of his truck on December 24th. Hello. Along with the boat. It's a boat cover. Right. But now it was placed in a shed under a leaking gas motor so the the leaf blower was oh leaking. that's where the gasoline came from okay but this seemed out of character because most of scott's things appeared to be kept in really good conditioned condition and well cared for and also scott's scott's boat had never been to the peterson house so why was his boat cover found in the shed of his house also suspicious the leaking yard blower was last used prior to december 24th so why is it on top of the cover Hmm. I don't know. I mean, all I can think is if he does try to keep his things in order, maybe he saw that it was leaking and said, hey, I'll just throw it on top of the cover so it doesn't leak into the floor or something like that. For me, that actually made sense. Yeah. Of course, I've never bought a boat cover. I don't know. I mean, they are a little pricey from what I know because they're all kind of they custom fit the boat. Again, I'm not sure exactly what kind of boat, but, um, you know, I would try to probably find something else to soak up the fuel, but I, I don't know. Maybe it was just in a hurry. Who knows? That was my thought. I thought, okay, I would probably use a boat cover before letting it just ruin everything in the right. shed. However, is a boat cover going to be my first choice? Uh, probably, yeah, probably not. Probably not. I'd probably find something yeah. different. But this boat cover did have some concrete debris 
that was able to be collected from it. The cover was also tested for biological stains such as blood, urine, and feces, and all of these tests came back negative. The shed where the cover was found was filled with the smell of gasoline, so much so that a cadaver dog was not able to go in and find anything of value and would not have been able to go in and find anything of value. Even if a deceased body had previously been in the shed, it was determined that unless an actual body part was still there in the shed, the gasoline smell would have obscured any scent of human decomposition. Oh. And even after the shed had been aired out for several days, for whatever reason, a dog was never brought in to search the shed. Huh. There was a pair of pliers found in the bottom of Scott's boat under one of the seats. And in the pliers were two hairs that were consistent with Lacey's and belonged to one of Sharon Roach's relatives. So, Lacey. Right. Lacey's hairs. I mean, we can't say for sure, but they were consistent with Lacey and they belonged to her mother's relative. So, sounds like Lacey's hairs to me. Lacey had never been in Scott's boat. Remember, he had just purchased it. And this caused authorities to suspicion that Scott had used these pliers to cut some wire, specifically chicken wire, that he used to tie anchors around Lacey's body, specifically an anchor around her neck. When Scott purchased the boat, the previous owner kept all of the anchors. So Scott said that he made one with concrete from his warehouse and then used the excess concrete to fill a hole near his driveway. You may have heard the little quip about like Nancy Grace saying, oh, there he did not. Because the big question is, if he only made one anchor, where's all that? all the remaining concrete uh-huh, yeah. and he's saying, Oh, I dumped it in yeah. my driveway. And Nancy Grace was like, absolutely not. This did not happen. And then someone took her out there and was like, look right. Here's the concrete. And okay. she was like, Oh, okay. And walked away, but yeah. never retracted her statement. <laughs> right. Well, so, that, that wouldn't be very Nancy, right. Nancy Grace of her. If she did. <laughs> right. So that's the big thing about the concrete. However, the prosecution brought in a concrete expert to testify that the concrete near the driveway was inconsistent with the anchor concrete and instead matched a different type of concrete that had been used to put in a fence post. There was one anchor found with Scott's boat. Interestingly, there was no tie or rope long enough to actually be used with this anchor. (laughs) There was concrete residue found inside buckets that would have been used as a mold to make the anchor. And there was residue in a spot where you could see that an anchor was made. The prosecution said that you can see from this spot that there was more than one anchor made, implying that the additional anchors were used to weigh down Lacey. This piece of information is pretty rough. I want to be sensitive to Lacey and her family. But when Lacey's body was later found, she was missing both arms, both legs, and her head. And prosecutors believe that over time, as her body decomposed under the water, with the weight of the anchors, those parts separated from the rest of her body. Also collected during the search was a roll of chicken wire found in Scott's truck. Scott told authorities that he'd purchased it to put around the trees and shrubs in the backyard to keep the the cats from scratching them. And detectives examined the trees in the Peterson's yard and did find scratch marks on the trees. And at one point, Detective Grogan even witnessed one of the cats scratching the trees. Detectives found it odd that the roll of chicken wire was found in Scott's truck if it was to be used at the house. And despite Scott saying that he had not yet used the chicken wire, the roll appeared to have been partially unwound with pieces cut from it. 
Detectives went to both Home Depot and Lowe's to see what measurements chicken wire was sold in, and in both stores it was sold in either 25 or 50 feet increments, but Scott's roll of chicken wire measured 14 and a half feet long. And he, at that point, has said he had not used it for anything. Correct. All right. Suspicious. Suspicious. Scent dogs were brought in, and on December 28th, these dogs indicated that Lacey had left her house in a vehicle. They'd caught scent of her at the end of the dock at the Berkeley Marina. Scott supporters say that the law enforcement was on a witch hunt and focused their searches at the bay because that's where Scott had gone the day that Lacey went missing. But those that believe Scott is guilty assert that they were searching that area because that's where the evidence led them. Where there's smoke, there's fire. Where the dog smells a Lacey, there's probably Lacey. Now, regardless of whether or not you believe that Scott Peterson killed his wife, most people, including his own defense team, agree that he was a pretty awful husband. We learned during his trial that he had multiple extramarital affairs during his marriage to Lacey, but the one that is most relevant to Lacey's disappearance was this affair with Amber Fry. So as I mentioned previously, on December 30th, Amber learned that Scott was married to the missing woman from Modesto. She immediately called the police, and the calls between Amber and Scott began being recorded. These recorded conversations were very damaging to Scott Peterson, obviously. However, Scott Peterson defenders want everyone to remember that during these recorded phone calls, Amber knew that Scott was lying to her, and she pretended that she did not. She was actively working with the police, making these phone calls, knowing she was being recorded in an effort to elicit a confession or something else that might help catch catch Scott as the killer. So as these phone calls are coming in and people are hearing them and saying to themselves things like, I can't believe he's talking to his mistress while he's at his wife and son's candlelight vigil, defenders want us to remember that under normal circumstances, Scott may not have been talking to Amber while he was at Lacey's vigil, but Amber was trying to get Scott on the phone. Mm, No. It's a stretch. Mm, No, he didn't have to answer. Correct. Thank you. Scott's defense team does want everyone to know. On December 31st, 2002, the day of Lacey's vigil, Amber called Scott at 3 p.m. and Scott called her back at 4.20, while the vigil started at 4.30. So it's widely reported that Scott was talking to Lacey at his wife's vigil, saying he was in Paris, you know, underneath the Eiffel Tower. Eiffel Tower. Thank you. (laughs) He was in Paris. During his wife's vigil and people were freaking out. But the defense wants us to know, no, he was there at the location, but it was 10 minutes before the vigil was supposed to start. So, so much better. I feel so much better. About Don't that you? I, I mean, so that changed better. everything for me. <laughs> He's no longer a scumbag. Right. Over the course of the next few weeks, there would be 29 recorded hours of calls between Scott and Amber. However, Scott has since claimed that he only continued his communication with Amber in an effort to keep her from going public and taking the attention off the search no. for Lacey. No, 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 that makes any sense to me. Well, see if you can make this one uh, pan out in your brain. On January 8th, Scott added the Playboy channel to his cable package. Yeah, natch. Five days later, he would drop the Playboy channel and replace it with harder, more explicit adult content channels. Man's got needs, you know? Wow. Yeah? Wow. Yeah. 
Now, this was not the only unusual behavior Scott displayed during the months Lisa was missing. One witness followed Scott from the volunteer center when Scott said he was going out to look for Lacey, and he saw that Scott went to the mall parking lot and sat in his vehicle for over 45 minutes instead of, you know, searching for his wife like he said he was going to be. Scott also did a lot of golfing during the months that Lacey was missing. Interestingly, despite his alleged interest in fishing, he spent all of his free time golfing, not fishing, on January. And was he physically seeing Amber at this time, too? Uh, No. Once she... Once she learned about him it it was via phone call okay got it on january 24th the modesto police held a press conference in which amber announced her affair with scott in a january 27th interview with diane sawyer scott said that he had told Lacey about amber in early december he said Lacey wasn't okay with it but that it was nothing that would break them up okay sure she was very open-minded. <laughs> you know, very pregnant. Um, I'm sure she was very open-minded. That would go over really well, right? Seven and a half months pregnant with your child. On February 10th, Connor's due date came and went. And in her book, this is really sad, Sharon Rocha said that as the due date approached, she started getting hopeful because she thought that if Lacey had been being held somewhere, that if she went into labor, she might end up in a hospital. Yeah. And so they might find her that way. But yeah. as we know, that didn't happen. Yeah. Heartbreaking. Yeah. During a February visit to the Peterson house, authorities saw that Scott was using Connor's nursery as a storage room, using it to store a mattress and office chairs, clothing, and items from his warehouse. Yeah. Uh, nope. <laughs> weird, right? <laughs> yeah. Because no. I was like, okay, is that weird? I mean, I wouldn't do that, but like, okay, it's an unused, like, is it weird? But it's weird, right? I, I, I personally think that's weird. Okay. Yes. On April 12, 2003, Scott bought a red Mercedes from a man named Michael Griffin, and when he was completing the paperwork, instead of using his own name, he used his mother's name, Jacqueline Peterson, and told Michael it was a boy-named-Sue kind of situation. Jacqueline testified in court that she had told Scott to buy the car in her name because the police kept taking his vehicles. Now, many people believe that he didn't use his own name so that he could flee in this car. On April 12, there was a very big storm near the Berkeley Marina with much higher than average wave activity. And the next day on April 13th, the body of a baby was found on the Richmond shoreline. Almost four months after Lacey disappeared on April 14th, Lacey's body was found washed up on the shore of San Francisco Bay. I mentioned earlier, Scott's supporters believe that the fact that Scott's alibi, the San Francisco Bay, was announced to the public immediately And because authorities focused much of their attention to searching these waters earlier on, that whoever had abducted Lacey, obviously not Scott, would have had the perfect place to put her body framing Scott. However, from the moment Lacey disappeared, the San Francisco Bay was highly trafficked, even being searched several times. There was swarms of media there, and even Scott himself would go sit by the water and just stare out for hours. Those are not the best conditions to be hiding a body. Right. When Lacey's body was found, there was no evidence of live birth, C-section, or even coffin birth, which is a natural reaction that happens when a deceased pregnant woman gives birth to her fetus. Instead, Connor was expelled through the top of Lacey's uterus as she decomposed. Right. Wow. The defense tried to assert that Connor was at a later fetal age 
than he was when Lacey initially went missing, inferring that Lacey was held alive for several weeks until the baby could be born. However, the state brought in experts to testify that he was the exact fetal age that he would have been on December 24th. Connor still had a piece of his umbilical cord attached, but it had been torn, not cut, which means that if he had been born alive, he would have bled to death. He was also found in a state of maceration, which is a process that begins after fetal death in utero. So, so, so sad. It's awful. It's just, I hate it. Now, his body was found in much better condition than Lacey's, which actually makes sense because he was protected by Lacey's own body. Experts say that he'd only been exposed for one to two days at the most, and if he had gone even another day without being found, he probably never would have been found, given his size and sea life. Sure, sure. Lacey's body had barnacles growing on her bones, and experts say that her level of decomposition was consistent with having been in the bay for three to six months. She was found wearing tan pants. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the barnacles on the bones, it's hard to argue with that. It's not like she's been in a freezer. It's not like she's been decomposing somewhere else. She's been in the ocean water. You got it. You got it. There's no there's no other way for that to happen. I mean, you could argue away some of the other things, but barnacles on the bone, how do you explain right, that? Right. Scott was arrested on April 18th, 2003. And when he was arrested, Scott had lost over 20 pounds, grown a goatee, and had bleached his hair. Many people believe this was an effort to change his appearance and flee, but Scott said that he'd changed his look to help avoid being recognized by media. But he was not using these physical changes to hide from the police. When he was arrested, he had four cell phones, his brother's ID, camping gear, $14,000 in cash, and a knife was found in his car. Whoa. Mega. He'd purchased this camping gear on March 16th, but said that he kept it in his car because he didn't have anywhere else to store it. The former owner of the car, this brand new red Mercedes, said that the knife in the door belonged to him and that he'd forgotten to grab it when he cleaned out the car. Now, Scott gave this really confusing account of where the $14,000 in cash came from, something like, you know, when he sold his truck. I don't know, money was pulled out from the wrong account accidentally, and then they had to pay him back. So they gave him this cat. I mean, it was it was a lot, but a little convoluted. Okay. Right. But I'm sharing all this because that looks really suspicious, but maybe the knife really did belong to the owner and maybe or, or the former owner of the car. And maybe the cash really was just happenstance. And I can see him wanting, I mean, guilty or not, I can see him wanting to change his appearance to avoid the media. Absolutely. Absolutely. These are the facts, Stephanie, leading up to Scott's arrest. And that's kind of where I want to stop because we know what happened in the in the trial. He was convicted and sentenced to death. He was later overturned uh, and changed to life in prison. He's filed an appeal, which the latest appeal for a new trial was denied. And he's based these things on juror misconduct. He said there was one juror who... um, she lied on her questionnaire about whether or not she had ever been a victim of violence because she had filed a restraining order against an ex-boyfriend against an ex-boyfriend's girlfriend at one point. So clearly she was lying on purpose just to get on his jury so that she can convict this guy to, you know, bring justice to all abused women kind of thing. So far, nobody's bought into any of that. Yeah, I mean, 
I really, uh, you know, we love researching on this podcast and I, I love that I was able to see it all just kind of laid out or hear it laid out. Um, yeah, I think the burglar story was the one that kept sticking with me and the one that's talked about so much. So much. And in many ways, it wants me, uh, it wants me, <laughs> I want, in many ways, I want to speak to one of these Scott Peterson supporters and ask, what is it that is compelling you to think he's innocent? Right. Um, you know, is it just you couldn't think he could commit the crime? Um, yeah, it's interesting. I will say after I did all this and my research is from like pieces from the trial and like, you know, I gathered my information and from Sharon several Roach, different places. Sharon Roach's book. book. I read her book, which really made me feel like I knew her and Lacey, you know, beautifully written book. And I recommend that anybody who's interested in this case, read it. I will say after I did all of that, I did listen to like I listened to this one podcast where the host clearly believed that Scott was innocent. Like they outright said, we believe he's innocent. Uh And they shared a lot of these same facts that I had. But like for the burglary, they failed to mention that. Oh, and by the way, the Medinas didn't leave the house till 1035. Okay. do you think it's trying to people just getting in their echo chambers? I mean, like avoiding or not recognizing some of the facts and just talking to other people that also think he's innocent. I think, I think it's fair to say that they are hearing like I did, because I'll tell you after I heard that somebody, a reporter has, was camped out on the street. You and I thought there might be a real chance. I was like, yeah. there's no way they're right. There's no way somebody's robbing that house with a reporter camped out on the street. So maybe she really did. That was reasonable doubt for me. Maybe she really did see a burglar, but then I found out more information and I had to go to several sources to get all of this information, like many sources. So I think people would probably just take what was widely reported on and go with it and maybe need to do a little more research. And that's why I wanted to kind of do it in this format. I know it's a little different than what I normally do, but I thought, let me say what he said. Let me say what the the prosecution said. And then if there's any evidence that lines up with either, here it is. And then you can just decide what you think. Strange that the defense did not call that individual that said he saw the boat empty. I feel that would have been huge. It it does make me wonder, were they worried about some kind of cross-examination, like something else that they may say? Because it feels like that would help their case unless there's something else that they didn't want to come into play. It would have been hard to argue with someone who said, I looked into the boat. Now, I will say this. I have seen, like I said, I feel like I've seen everything there is to see on this case. And I have seen diagrams where um, they have supposedly done like these reenactments and put someone the size and shape of what Lacey would have been in a replica of this boat. Uh And if positioned in certain ways, even if you were like looking into the boat, you still wouldn't be able to see her. Oh, Okay. That's that's kind of hard to believe because this was a tiny little 14 foot dinghy. Like this is not a big, yeah. this is not a yacht. Yeah. So that's hard to imagine. But there are, I mean, you want to go down a rabbit hole, Go. this is the case to do it. There are tons of things. Like whatever you want to believe, you can find something to back back up your belief system on this case. It is funny that um, they haven't been able to find any biological material in the truck or the boat. Nope. You know, that would make it 
more clear to me. Right. Um, but I think the verdict was probably right. But yeah, it would be nice to have just one or two more little chains, you know, links in the chain to connect it all together. I would have I would have definitely liked that. And of course, you know, that's people who think he's guilty think, OK, the reason why that boat cover had all that gasoline on it, it wasn't really a linking a leaking leaf blower. It was Scott dousing it with gasoline in an effort to throw off search dogs and to hide any material. I mean, who yeah, knows? Seems like, like he would have found something more, you know, but it's hard to it. it I, that's true. I mean, there is no there is no direct evidence saying that not he in absolutely his truck, did it. not in not, his boat. Right. Not in the house. Right. I, right. I, I right. Mean, I'm sure they've done luminol yeah. in the house. Nope. They didn't find anything There's, in there. Nope. However, the bodies did end up exactly where he said he was. Trust me. I mean, I, mean, I get it. Yeah. I, and again, I think I think it's probably true that he committed the crime, but it would be nice to just have a little bit more confirmation. It, there's always, a, I think there's almost always a little bit of a question in the back of my mind. And if I were on a jury, like I would want to be so sure, like, I mean, obviously, of you know, so. Especially when you're talking yeah. about what they were considering was the death, death penalty, penalty at that point. Yeah. Yeah, so that's the case. But that actually brings us to the Branch of Hope. Yes. Your December 2023 nonprofit options are Superstition Search and Rescue, which we're covering this week on this episode 23, and the Amelia Earhart Memorial Scholarship Fund provided through the 99s, which we will cover next week on episode 24. So to vote, head to our Facebook page to let us know through our online poll which fund speaks to you. There are no strings attached, no gimmicks. We're simply a podcast leading through words and actions, and we want to make sure your voice is heard. So let me tell you just a little bit about the first organization that we're going to highlight, and that is Superstition Search and Rescue which was the very first recipient of the Lacey and Connor Peterson Fund. And that's why we chose this organization for today's episode. So I spoke with Commander Robert Cooper for about an hour. And man, he is just the coolest guy. Yeah, that's awesome. He explained to me how in the 30 years that he's been doing search and rescue, so much has changed given the advancements in technology. Now we have GPS satellite phones, emergency locators, and that has done so much to help find people in peril. He told me about how 30 years ago, if someone went missing, if you were able to get a helicopter search going, you were like one of the lucky ones. But now helicopters are so widely available, they're practically standard, which is amazing. Yeah. So what Superstition Search and Rescue is able to do is now they are able to focus on cold cases and disaster relief. So Superstition Search and Rescue is made up of about 20 volunteers who donate their time to learn all about how to use maps and compasses, ham radios, annual camp trainings, wilderness first responder courses, and wilderness first aid, which I thought this was really interesting. It's completely different than like regular first aid because regular first aid, you're doing what you can until like proper help can arrive. But wilderness first aid you may not have a first responder coming anytime soon. So it's right. like a whole different 
right thing and i thought that was so interesting something i would have never thought about stabilizing someone until you can get them out of the wilderness right now this organization has been able to recover people who've been missing for many years they've recovered suicide suicide victims who've been lost they've rescued missing children they've helped with their community's local baby formula crisis just in the most recent years. Oh, that's amazing. Isn't it amazing? They distribute blankets and hygiene kits. They're also able to help quickly respond to disasters in areas that are not able to get help from other disaster relief organizations as quickly. So they're just there to help where they can. And Commander Cooper's advice for all of us He wanted me to share this information with you that we all just need to be prepared and be willing to advocate for ourselves ahead of time. And if we ever find ourselves in the event that we're in the middle of a disaster or emergency, like have at least the basics to be able to take care of ourselves. Water, you know, just kind of the basic things. He said a lot of it comes down to just being prepared. Yeah, sure. Good advice. The next project that they want to focus on is making go bags that would contain a 72-hour food pack, a knife, a first aid kit, blanket, hygiene kits. And these bags are available on other websites, but they're not very cost effective. And so Superstition is wanting to build their own so they can be more widely distributed and able to help more people. So if you would like to help, check out Superstition Search and Rescue's website at superstitionsar.org where you can read all about Superstition Search and Rescue and the amazing work that they do. So the way this works is in December, you get to vote. Would you like a portion of our funds to go towards Superstition Search and Rescue? Or would you like our donation to go to the Amelia Earhart Memorial Scholarship Fund put on by the 99s? Just head over to our Facebook page and let us know in our poll. We will also have an additional donate button if you personally feel that you would like to donate through these causes, and we will make sure that it gets straight into their hands. If you love this episode, love us, or love the Branch of Hope, tell someone. We are doing good work, and we need you to help spread the good word. You can also join our Patreon, which allow us to keep creating and connecting with you. Please send us an email to the dark oak podcast at gmail.com. We are open to your questions, comments, and anything else you want to share. For other ways to connect, hop over to the dark Be sure to follow us to our next episode where we cover the mysterious disappearance of Amelia Earhart. We will dig into details and theories. Thanks for listening, Shiver Seekers. You rock. This episode of The Dark Oak was created, researched, written, recorded, hosted, edited, published, and marketed by Cynthia and Stephanie of Just Us Gals Productions and made possible by you, our shiver-seeking listener. Special thanks goes to Justice Himes for our incredible artwork and Ryan Crete for our amazing music.